Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature, and this is Working Scientist and Nature Careers podcast. In this seven part series, Science Diversified, We're exploring how the scientific enterprise truly benefits when you have a team of researchers from a broad range of backgrounds, disciplines and skill sets. Each episode ends with a 10-minute sponsored slot from the International Science Council about its work on diversity. In this second episode, we're off to Japan. We're visiting the Okinawa Institute of Technology to see how its model of international recruitment translates into scientific excellence. I've seen hundreds of labs in my life. But if you step into this place, you can still see this is special. It's the highest level of internationality that I have ever experienced. Hi, my name is Peter Gruss and I'm the president of the Okinawan Institute of Science and Technology in Japan. And this internationality, of course, has a basis in a very simple principle. And the founding fathers have established the principle that OIST should hire more than 50% of the professors and 50% of the graduate students as non-Japanese. So by now we have about 60-65% of our professors are non-Japanese and 80% of our graduate students are non-Japanese coming from all over the world. Okinawa is one of the islands that belong to Japan and it is a couple of thousand kilometers away from the mainland and we are actually in subtropical climate which is wonderful and all of you are encouraged to go into Google Earth and look where OIST is because we are looking at the sea every day The sea is very warm. We have uh, uh, reefs, coral reefs, and the coral reefs are alive. Very little uh, 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 coral death. So I can and I can encourage you to look at it not just from the scientific point of view, but also from the aesthetics point of view, and from the way of life point of view. It is good to live here. The reason for why OIST is doing better science is, is really on the one side, and I fully believe this because we would otherwise not be able to recruit these people, it's the high trust. 
because we get people from the United States, from the UK, from France, from Germany, top people who apply. Why? Because they are fed up with writing grants. They want to do something creative and have five years block of time in order to develop a new idea at the cutting edge of research. That's the first thing. The second thing is the internationality. So I think this internationality is really a big point uh, for OIST because, see, the Japanese market is about, uh, let's say, give and take 130 million people. The world market is about close to 8 billion. So all we do, we don't look at the passport, we look at the quality of the people. My name is Marilka Joe Uusisaari, but Joe is much easier and that I go by that name only. I was born in Finland, grew up in Finland. I'm half Polish though, and currently I'm an assistant professor at OIST. I am uh, working in the field of systems neuroscience, motor control neuroscience, and cerebellar research. There are the things that, of course, are obviously different, that we are in a place we don't where we don't have any other institutes nearby. We are remote and, and we have a beach and, and we have nice architecture. Um, these are the things that people often uh, notice when they come and visit. Also, there's a fact that we don't have departments and it's the fact that we don't have them we are, uh, is very deeply ingrained into everything we do. So we absolutely in every possible way, try to avoid any kind of segregations of research fields into topics or buildings or something, which is really, really important thing. Also quite challenging. And then this idea that we are really trying to uh, focus on supporting individual researchers. So that probably would be, of course, most significantly, individual PIs and their visions and their ambitions and their ideas without so much of manipulating or controlling that. So we are, we are giving a lot of freedom in the way we are conducting our work, which is very, very nice and inspiring, of course, also very challenging. Sometimes it maybe would be nice that somebody would tell you what kind of research you're supposed to do to be successful. Um, so it's kind of like freedom has its, has its costs. What's so specific about us is that I wouldn't be surprised if it would be somehow the most diverse university on the planet if we just look from the point of view of how many nationalities we have. So among the roughly maybe 1,500 people that are on the campus working, we have people from roughly maybe up to 60 different countries when we take together the faculty and researchers as students. So that is an amazing diversity and amount of different languages that you that are being spoken on the corridors. And so yes, my team has, uh, we are seven, eight members and every single person is from different country from all different continents. They are they are from Turkey, China, Poland, France, Italy, uh, India, and Malaysia. Mm. Of course, the operating language is English, always. You might think that it's enough to just bring different people together, 
So that is just the first step. So now think about like this. We are maybe 1,500 people, out of which maybe half of our non-Japanese. On top of the diversity, there is also the possibility of quite large uh, factorization. So the community can, can fracture very easily if you are very diverse and you don't take special measures and like attention and care to build the sense of community across all of these nationalities and people. So everybody comes with their own background, their own cultural uh, views and whatever they, the way they grew up, their religions and customs. And it is not easy and probably not even possible to always assume that everybody who comes to a to a uh, diverse place like Oist would be already prepared for the diversity. So we are here putting a lot of effort into all kind of uh, multinational and uh, diversity events and trying to educate people about cultures and, and so these are even things that are driven from top. So we have all kind of like national holidays and bringing, highlighting different cultures. And I think this is important to remember that just that you bring people from different backgrounds, different uh, minorities together and make them work together does not necessarily immediately lead to a good and harmonious, diverse workplace. So you need to put the next step to that. So my name is Denis Konstantinov. So currently I'm a faculty member of Okinawa uh, of Science and Technology. I'm a professor. And also I run experimental group, uh, experimental unit. So we study experimental physics. So in particular, some quantum phenomena in condensed matter systems. Uh, so originally I'm from Russia. So I got educated in Russia. Then I went to US for my PhD. Uh, I graduated Brown University in physics. And in 2004, uh, I moved to Japan. Yes, well, I have quite internationally diverse uh, unit. Uh, so I have people from Ukraine, Canada, uh, Japan. So students from Taiwan and China, uh, USA. Well, I mean, of course, one thing about international, well, kind of international people from, from, from other countries. So, so education background is very important. So, well, at least in the beginning, I saw that education background is very important. So I always keen of uh, working pe from, with people from, for example, Russia and in Europe, because I know that education background is very good. And U.S. is different. So U.S., they, they, the, the way scientists work in U.S. is different. They maybe not rely that much on education background, but they have this, they can quickly connect different things. And they, they actually very efficient, maybe even more efficient. So I always try to kind of, so to communicate with this kind of people with good education background, so. Okay, so I'm Amy Shen. I'm a professor at uh, Okinawa Institute of uh, Science and Technology. Yeah, I was born in Shanghai, and uh, so I, you know, I grew up in China. I went to college in China, and and then applied for a graduate school. I moved to United States. My expertise is in fluid mechanics. So I study how to move liquids, how to manipulate them inside uh, very small-scale channels on the order of uh, 10 to 100 microns. 
And so just just to give you a sense, so so for like a single hair, a single hair strand, it's on the order of fifty microns. So everything we do, so you have to kind of use the microscope and uh, to view that you know how cells move and uh, how to, for example, deliver drugs, so into a tumor, that kind of stuff. So I I tell my students and postdocs they're all kind of like a superhero with one kind of very special superpower. So so we can learn from each other and also so make things work too. Because if we want to work on uh, develop something related to biotechnology, so everything has to work each component, and so so that that has been、uh, really special. So、uh, so I cannot do that. If、uh, I'm in a kind of a traditional university, people who educated, who are educated in U.S. or Europe, or from from Asia, from China, so we operate slightly differently, and、uh, so so that's what I noticed. For example, you know, with my Japanese postdoc and colleagues, so they're like very focused and they're really good. It's kind of、uh, you know the. The ten thousand hour、uh, concept. So, so you become the master of the master, and、uh, so based on. Uh, uh, but I think it's also related to personality, right, and and so on. But I think in U.S. at least,、uh, um, based on my training and also the research career, a lot of times, so we are kind of forced and also encouraged to kind of reinvent ourselves. Uh, every few years, there is a cycle, kind of, you know. Even the research topics they select, some of them they are more focused on,、uh, you know, one thing, and、uh, they they have been working on that for many years, and they they keep you know pushing and、uh, you know to to reach the maximum height, and、uh, that's necessary, that's important, right? That's why in Japan you see how many Nobel Prize winners there are. I think that's based on that determination. Other researchers are more maybe versatile, so they also you know they they like to work on different problems every couple years. I wouldn't say more creative, just more maybe open minded and、uh, you know like to reach out to different you know topics and disciplines. And so inside Oist, and uh, I think what's really special is it allows.、Uh, As different types of、uh, you know people, I think it's a very flexible and open environment, and I so so that's why I think it's very helpful if if you bring these people together, and then you can、um, actually,、uh, I guess it's more likely to、um, to make、uh, some breakthroughs. If you then look into it. You can see the cross interdisciplinarity, which is also laid out in every building. Every, the entire architecture of our labs makes room for all disciplines. We have meetings, and of course, what we hope is that this mix—and it is an arbitrary mix by the time of hiring—but this arbitrary mix. Will allow people to have serendipity meetings, with the hope 
that the more they meet, the more they mix, the more they have to meet at machines that are common to all, that the more the likelihood will be that they can come up with something completely new. Now that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by the International Science Council, which looks at why diversity is so critical to advancing science and the steps we can take to improve it. I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature. Thanks for listening. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All of the major problems of our time, the pandemic, climate change, the massive inequalities, the nature of fiscal responses and so on. The most interesting answers come from the economists who are largely ignored by the mainstream and who are not taught to students in colleges and universities. Welcome to this podcast series from the International Science Council, where we're exploring diversity in science. I'm Marnie Chesterton, and in this episode, we're looking at how multiple perspectives can create better science, whether you're devising economic policy, planning a city, or protecting natural resources. Science is a team effort. All the sciences face complex challenges, which require diverse viewpoints, ideas and thinkers. But how can we put these ideals into practice? As part of a recent project, the ISC has been examining what the post-pandemic age means for economics, and diversity has been a key theme. According to Jayati Ghosh, Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst in the US, it's a discipline that needs to be more open to change. I do feel that the economics discipline has actually got more and more impoverished over the last half century because it has moved away from the recognition that economics is a social science or rather broadly a study of society in its economic aspects, which means that it is necessarily more open to debate, that it is less purely scientific in terms of the absolute objectivity of certain conclusions, that it has a more need to recognize the other social forces, political, anthropological, cultural, uh, power imbalances. It has to recognize all of those things when it actually analyzes the economy. We've moved away from that to a notion of economics as being subject to some iron laws and being very, very uh, technical in the understanding in a way that has diminished the discipline and has diminished our ability to actually understand the economy. We make models which are based on very restrictive assumptions, which somehow assumes that the underlying assumptions are correct and they're not. But economists are often surprised when the economic reality turns out to be very different. 
the global financial crisis was a famous example. Uh, I think the Queen of England famously remarked, why did none of you see it coming? Economists whom we call, you know, heterodox or pluralist who have, who recognize uh, these different possibilities, they had been warning for several years about the possibility of a very major crisis, but they were ignored. So I think the discipline has really lost by not coming clean about the nature of the assumptions that guide the mainstream theories. Jayati also argues that this lack of diversity in approach is affected by a lack of diversity in the people who are actually doing economics. There's a domination of what I call the North Atlantic, which is to say that economists based in the United States, the United Kingdom, and to some extent Northern Europe, writing in English, get far greater recognition and uh, acceptance than economists everywhere else in the world. If you look just at the, the Nobel Prize for Economics, I mean, who does it get awarded to over all of these uh, decades? There's been a lot of discussion of how, you know, women uh, often get uh, excluded or marginalized. And certainly there are very few women who make it to the top of the profession. Uh, very few role models in that sense. Uh, there are, um, there's a huge lack of diversity, even in the North Atlantic in terms of people of different ethnic backgrounds, uh, race, uh, religion, and so on. Now, why does this matter? Because when you come from a particularly different reality, you are more aware of the assumptions that need to be changed, of the ways in which economic mechanisms play out differently for different groups. And that changes the way you do your science. That changes the way you do your analysis. Luckily, though, things are changing. And there are those who want to make economics more permeable to different groups and voices. And that's because young people have come out in far greater number and across the world to demand change. Groups like the Young Scholars Initiative, which has also grown massively in the last few years, who are also questioning and they're open. They're saying, look, we are not going to exclude anybody. We want to hear all the different positions and we want to expose ourselves to as many ideas, traditions and analyses as possible so that we can judge for ourselves which is the most applicable, which is the most relevant, which truly advances our own knowledge. This idea is at the heart of the ISC's Lira 2030 programme, which supports early career scientists in Africa working to meet the goals of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. What's distinctive about the Lira programme is that it promotes transdisciplinary research integrating knowledge and perspectives from different scientific disciplines and from non-academics. The idea of transdisciplinary research involving other people, other disciplines and local people always has something to teach us, especially those of us who are academics. This is Dan Incombe, Professor of Planning at the Kwam Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Ghana, where he's been involved in Lira 2030. Young grantees come into the process and they are faced with the problem of having to cross disciplines to go into other fields to be able to, to engender this kind of cross-disciplinary uh, research. I think the general sense is that it was quite exciting and you, you found a large number of the grantees very enthusiastic and very 
open to stepping into new grounds and discovering things uh, for themselves. And then you get those who are a bit skeptical about whether this will work at all. Dan's own field of research in urban policies is a focus of the Lira programme, and it's one that benefits hugely from the transdisciplinary approach. Essentially, I'm, I'm looking at how urban policies can influence the, the kind of things we see in the, in the urban landscape and, and who are the actors who are involved in the processes. I think the, the interesting thing is the perceptions of, of people who are educated, people who are public servants, people who are privileged. Sometimes people have the notion, and sometimes us academics as well, we, we have the notion that it's our prerogative or it's, it's our preserve and that, in quotes, ordinary people uh, do not know much about policymaking and as a result, it is the enlightened, the educated, the elite who will do the policy and later consult the people for their opinions. And that is sometimes shocking uh, because... Um, it tells you a lot about how people conceptualize the whole development process and the fact that there's a lot of exclusion uh, from that whole process. And I personally think from my experience that that is the reason why we see a lot of the issues that are unresolved in the urban landscape. The whole idea of uh, transdisciplinary research um, is to accept that one discipline, one um, let me say, kind of knowledge alone cannot respond to the complexity of urban uh, issues that we face and that there needs to be collaboration, there needs to be interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary approach to resolving issues. Uh, and so once you uh, have that at the back of your mind, then um, the so-called ordinary people uh, also have something to contribute. This more inclusive way of doing research, which values and utilises the contributions of so-called ordinary people, is especially important when the outcomes of that research are going to impact those people. I think it's, it's fundamental to have diverse perspectives and Indigenous peoples have the long-term experience and the biocultural connections, intersections between biological and cultural diversity. And I think that academia has a very important role to play in bringing these voices to the policymaking, in supporting indigenous struggles. This is Simone Atayiji, Associate Professor in Global and Sociocultural Studies at Florida International University. Simone is part of the ISC's community of World Social Science Fellows. In 2012, her team was approached by indigenous communities who were concerned about several new dams that were under construction in the Amazon. So a couple of different indigenous leaders uh, came to talk to, to me and to my colleagues to ask for support for their struggles and also to, to challenge some of these studies that did not take their knowledge into consideration. This led Simone and her colleagues to set up the Amazon Dams Network to promote transdisciplinary dialogue and coordinate research across Amazonian rivers, knowledge systems and people. We realised 
that people were not talking to each other, researchers were not connecting their um, their topics, were not connecting their research, the research that existed were not properly communicated to, you know, to society and to different actors, and also that indigenous peoples were, and local communities were largely invisible in this process of hydropower development. It was through working with indigenous communities to monitor the potential impacts of the dams that researchers were able to discover new things. So we were developing the questions for the monitoring with them. And then something that the researchers did not think about was to also monitor the fruits that are used by the fish that are very important for, you know, the fish to be um, sustained and and so they the indigenous uh, community said hey look um this fruit is super important but we need to understand what the flow of the river of the changes in the flow of the river will cause to these fruits so all of that was like a lesson uh to us and there was uh in, included in the monitoring questions and in the monitoring program The Amazon Dams Network also highlighted the importance of including women in research projects like this. The indigenous women's uh, leadership was was incredible for us to to witness that because, you know, women uh, hold very different knowledge in comparison to men when it comes to the environment. It's critical to have women's participation and to hear women's voices on these topics. Bringing such a range of people and viewpoints together isn't always easy, and there may be some who are against the inclusion of different types of knowledge in research, or who are uncomfortable with it. But Simone has some advice on how to promote fruitful collaboration. You need to be really welcoming and then use, you know, the theory of um collaborative knowledge production, the theory of transdisciplinarity to to involve them. And there are several tools and methods and things that you can use. And one of them is to use bridging concepts. Um, For example, to ask questions about the values of rivers. Uh, For different people, different people will have different notions, different opinions, different worldviews on on rivers and importance of rivers. And, and when you ask those questions openly, uh, other things can happen. And even biophysical scientists can express something even more spiritual that is connected to that worldview. And, and that can make them uh, more open uh, to, to hear and to listen to different perspectives. And then also setting the ground rules early in the process which is to be more tolerant and inclusive of different different perspectives, help. Because when there is any intolerance, you can bring back or remind people of what is our mission here, which is really learn from each other and to be more open and tolerant. Simone, Dan and Jayati's work show that knowledge is a shared journey, requiring input from diverse groups. We each come to science with our own perspectives and experiences. And only by harnessing those can we discover new things about the world, adapt to its challenges and help science advance. That's it for this episode on diversity in science from the International Science Council. You can find out more about the Lira 2030 programme and the other projects mentioned in this episode online at council.science. 
Next week, we'll be looking at improving gender diversity in science, including initiatives to give women a stronger voice in science organisations, and hearing from former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson, on why climate change is a man-made problem in need of a feminist solution. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 